Hello, welcome to Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. That's comic books, fans. Uh, this is a podcast where two brothers talk about comic books they've loved all their lives. We are doing the Fantastic Four. I'm one of the two brothers. My name is Will Hines. I'm his younger brother, Kevin Hines, located in New York City. And I'm located in Los Angeles. Although today I'm recording in Portland, Oregon, since I'm teaching an improv workshop up here, Kevin. The life of the jet set. The life of the improv teacher is a luxurious cosmopolitan Flew up in your private jet. That's right. I chartered my private jet that I've bought with my improv money. And then I uh, have a unicopter that I use to get around the city. Mm-hmm. One man helicopter. You're not the only one doing that in Portland, I would assume. In, no, in Portland, there's a rideshare program where you can just check out a unicopter on the corner. It's solar powered. And then uh, as long as you stay in the lane, you're allowed to use it. That's a cool city. They're each individually made by different local artists. Yeah. Mine is a metaphor for the oppression of women. Yeah, they don't fly well, but they look great. Uh, yeah, mine doesn't really work. I have to kind of have to carry it and walk along. And uh, uh, listeners, also, uh, in case you couldn't tell from that hilarious exchange, <laughs> Kevin and I are comedians. We um, are performers and teachers at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Kevin in the New York branch, me in the L.A. branch. We're not official comic book people, except for just being lifelong fans. And so... This season, we have been analyzing the Fantastic Four, the original run by the creators Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. And they did, I'm estimating, about 10,000 issues, I think. Is that right, Kevin? Yeah, just just under that at 102. You're off by a few there. 102 mm-hmm. issues plus six annuals. And uh, we're reaching the end here. We're getting to the, we're reaching sort of the, uh, the last arc of their, not a story arc, but the last sort of third or 25% of the issues they've done. Yeah. In between issues, uh, Stan and Jack also did everything else that Marvel's putting out at the time, except for Spider-Man. Well, Stan did that as well. Yeah. So um, they kept it busy. They kept it busy. And uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, Jack Kirby was the artist and um, co-writer. Some would say much more than a co-writer, maybe the mostly the sole writer. And Stan was the co-writer who definitely wrote the dialogue and would pitch story ideas to Jack. The exact amount of the collaboration is always in debate among Marvel fans, so we just generally say it's a co-creation of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee, because we know that covers it. Yeah, and this is the stretch where the stories are getting a little thinner, a little more just action. They're they're becoming more blockbuster, Michael Bay movie, a little less somebody smarter. (laughs) A little less Wes Anderson. Um, Well, I don't know if they were ever Wes Anderson. They've always been action movies, right? But at one yeah, point, they're sort of it, like nuanced character-based action movies, and now they're just becoming sort of just like leaner Nicolas Cage vehicles. They used to be Die Hard, and now they're Transformers? Yeah, I think so. Uh, maybe better than Transformers, but that's definitely in the range. They used to be Die Hard, and now they're Bad Boys with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence? Sure, I, I guess that reference checks out. Well, yeah, uh, there's definitely, like, less new characters. There's sort of, you know, Jack Kirby created so many characters along the way, and from this point forward, they mostly recycle their big characters. Sometimes they'll throw in some ancillary ones. And, yeah, it's still a lot, it's a lot of fighting. Yeah. Um, pretty uh, pretty um, good fighting. It's solid action movies. I mean, they, some, of these, some of these stories are really fun to read. They read really fun. They're sort of forgettable but fun. And, that, and that's, like, also kind of fitting in with, like, the sort of big blockbuster, dumb action movies where you sort of watch them and you're like, oh, this, you know, I don't know. I like watch John Wick and I think about certain scenes from John Wick all the time. But then I watch other action movies and I'm sort of like, oh, I enjoyed that. I can't tell you what happened in it 
10 minutes later. Yeah, I always enjoy Fast and Furious movies a great deal. But if you ask me to summarize the story of a particular one, I, I can't quite remember it. I just remember sequences or something. Yeah, and that's more what we're into at this point. Um, so they're good. They're enjoyable. They look great. Uh, but they aren't. We're not going to get another Galactus story. We're not going to get another This Man, This Monster uh, after a little bit, there won't even be any multi-issue arcs. They sort of get away from that. Yeah, it's. Um, I would love. I wish they uh, kept a diary so we knew exactly what the plan was. But part of Marvel's appeal was it was a very small operation. It was Stan, Jack, Steve, a couple other artists that Stan um, hired. So it wasn't like there was a big team of people. And it's not like they were recording conversations. You know, they were just sort of chatting mm. with each other on the phone or in person. And so, so there's funny just they no did. proof of it. I mean, if that stuff got released, it'd be so interesting. Oh, man. Just to even hear an, an early Stan Jack when they're getting along, not even one that told you anything about the split, would be so fascinating hearing them discuss upcoming issues. Yeah. I mean, they, they always seem to get along somewhat. Like, there's some photo of them in the 80s with their arms around each other at a convention. Like, glad to see each other. Like, it, Steve and Stan, Steve Ditko, the co-creator of Spider-Man... They had a falling out. Like, I don't think Ditko ever talked to Stan except for, like, one business meeting with Tom DeFalco in the 90s. And Stan and Jack seemed to be more, like, businessmen about it. Well, I think they had stretches where they weren't talking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, that sounds right. And as, as I was talking, I was like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I think certainly by, like, the near the ends of, like, their lives, like, shortly before Jack died, it didn't seem like if he was holding a grudge, he was setting it aside most of the time. Yeah. Um, I don't think Stan ever held a grudge. That, that wouldn't make sense. Yeah. I think Stan was always like, I love these guys. I would, I'd love to work with them again. I think they're the best. I think Stan, despite taking credit at times, knew how great Jack and Stan were and was always willing to talk with them and work with them. Like, that never went away. It's, it's funny how when you like some art and you want to know, or I find this to be true, you want to know, like, the behind-the-scenes stories of the personalities who made it, you know? I love knowing stuff like that. Yeah, and it's even more interesting when there's just no way. Like, nowadays, it's like because, you know, we're in an era past director commentaries and Q&As and just, like, mm-hmm. where everyone, mm-hmm. uh, geek culture has been mined so thoroughly that everyone knows <laughs> yeah. there's process junkies out there who want to know this stuff. Yeah. But, you know, in the 60s, like, they didn't even keep all the original art for stuff, right? I mean, like, a lot of times yeah, original they... art, they would either shred or flip it over and use the back for something. Because they're yeah. like, well, nobody wants this. It's just paper at this point. Uh, how they would, or they would record over episodes of television. Like, we don't have a lot of, you know, we almost lost all the Monty Python episodes. The early Tonight shows with Johnny Carson are all gone. Yeah. Stuff like that. It was just too much film. They, just, they needed to use that tape again. Yeah. And who's going to care about... Johnny Carson interviewing somebody about a movie that came out 50 years ago. The first episode of The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, his guest is Groucho Marx, and we don't have it. I think that'd be, like, super fun to see. Um, well, and that's why also we're deleting our podcasts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, every you know, we, we put them up for a couple weeks, and then I erase them, and I destroy the computer. We need that digital space back Yeah, somehow. We don't want to take up space on the Internet. Yeah, the internet. Uh, I mean, there's no problem now, but it's going to run out of space. It's going to run out. Yeah, it's and gonna everyone's going to look at us as forward thinking. Yep, we will get credit for that. Yeah, um, Kev, should we get into some issues? No, let's talk for <laughs> another twenty to forty minutes. Twenty to forty. All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Let's we get only into ha- it. We're on issue okay. seventy-eight. The thing. No more. Yeah. So 
just to catch people up, uh, the last few issues, the FF had been in the microverse searching for the Silver Surfer mm-hmm. who needed to come out and tell Galactus not to eat Earth, and he did that. <laughs> and then uh, the FF had a little tussle with Psycho Man who lives in the microverse. And yes. when the FF mentioned that you know Galactus was hassling Earth, Psycho Man sent the FF home, and that's sort of where that issue ended. Also, that issue last month was the start of the Silver Surfer solo book, which we didn't cover, but that's now existing in the Marvel Universe. The Marvel Universe is expanding right now. Uh, Hulk and Iron Man and Captain America uh, all have their own books now instead of sharing titles. Things are happening. Things are happening. Uh, I think the stories went through a bit of a lull, and they kind of get fun here, if forgettable. Yeah, in my um, notes I wrote down for this specific issue, and I think I mentioned this last episode when I was trying to find it, um, but for this issue I wrote, best issue in a while. I also wrote, yeah. all anyone talks about is dating. <laughs> I love it. I love when the soap opera takes, it really becomes part of the FF. Like, Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, is dating Crystal, the Inhuman, mm-hmm. who controls the weather. I love this couple. I stand them. Mm-hmm. I stand. Sure. I think I'm using that verb correctly. I don't know. Um, I mean, you're using the right word. I don't know how to phrase it in a way that I, sounds normal. I ship them. I ship them, but they're already dating, so I guess it's it's a moot ship because um, they have they have relationship to themselves. But uh, I, I like it. I mean, what I really loved about X Men in the '80s with Chris Claremont is it'd be like 80% relationship angst, 20% fighting. I don't. I mind. think that's fun. The dating, I just wish they had other things going on in their lives. Yeah. Any like any like, other normal, uh, not necessarily like paying rent like Peter Parker, but like what else are they up to? Like they're Some, creating a business. We get into the corporate reports. Yeah. Uh, Johnny's going to compete in a, a race with one of his hot rods. The thing is trying to do some philanthropy, but nobody wants to deal with him because he's a monster. Like those sorts of storylines would be very interesting. But yeah. all they talk about is their... You know, the thing whining about Alicia hating him because he looks like a monster, though she mm-hmm, doesn't. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Johnny and Crystal are in love, but, you know, she's got a whole race of relatives that are always in problems. And then Reed yeah. and Sue are just screaming at each other in hatred. Yeah, well, they're, they're, yeah, they're an interesting bunch. They, they should try to broaden their interests. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Get some so hobbies. So this issue, Kevin... This issue, Kevin, is once again... What if The Thing started a podcast? I mean, that's what I want to read about. I would love it. I mean, it'd be so great. What, you know, what a revolt in development is what it should be called. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, and there could be, a uh, you know, Aunt Petunia's, uh, you know, mailbag or whatever. Oh, Willie Lumpkin should have the podcast. Oh, yeah. the He's the archivist. You know, he's the mailman. Anyway, uh, let's get into it, Will. The Thing No More, issue 78, September 1968. America is in a. I don't know anything about 1968. I mean, it's it's uh, the Vietnam War. It's uh, Martin Luther King has been those killed. Robert Kennedy's been killed. None of those are big deals. Uh, Woodstock is a year away, and the Man on the Moon is a year away. Well, no. this is like one of the most tumultuous chapters in American history. None actually. of that stuff matters in the grand scheme of stuff. People don't think about any of those things anymore. <laughs> Uh, really, there's like three big tent poles in American history. George Washington was elected president. Okay, uh, yeah, that the was first big. episode of The Office debuted. The on American NBC. Office. The American <laughs> Office. That's right. <laughs> okay. And last week's episode of our podcast, the last episode <laughs> of our podcast, three? that's the third that's tent pole in American history. That's equal to George Washington being elected president. I would have paid more attention as we did it. I had no idea. Yeah. It was such a momentous occasion. Yeah, I mean, we covered like 10 issues. I think it was a pretty good episode. <laughs> Kevin, about this issue, this is yet another time when the thing becomes human, turns back to Ben Grimm, but they need his thing powers, but he might never be able to be human again. They've done this at least five times, right? Yeah, there's... um. 
sometimes he doesn't want to be human. Sometimes he does, but like sometimes he doesn't mind. And it's just like whenever they want to do this story, they just do it. They don't worry about yeah. the logic of where his uh, mental state is. Yeah. He turns human and it's like, well, if you turn into a thing, you'll never be human again. It's for sure a thing that happened when they zapped him with the ray to turn him into the thing to fight Dr. Doom. Yeah, that was like a big dramatic decision where they just really needed him. And the thing quit the but, team after that because he had been turned back into a thing and he was mad. He didn't really, it wasn't really with his consent. They just kind of zapped him. Yes, that's right. Uh, so they're, well, they're hitting this, they're hitting this again. Uh, also, Kevin, the wizard, uh, the leader of the Frightful Four, who is the villain of this is issue, has uh, wonder gloves. Uh, would you like to talk about those and tell me what the heck that means? I mean, if that name doesn't tell you enough, I don't <laughs> think I can help you. Well, the wizard is already a genius. Yes. If you give him the power of wonder gloves... He mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. in a word, unbeatable. He also already has his anti-gravity discs, right? Yes. That's why he's the wingless wizard now. Which gives him the power of flight, which only like half of the people in the Marvel Universe have. Let me quote the wizard here, Will. Okay. So long as I wear these, my greatest creations, my powers become virtual, virtually incalculable. How do you like that for an answer? Well, I feel you've given me no specific information, but I am cowed. I think they make him stronger. They zap things. They're one of these, like, Kirby gadgets, like, we had with the Sandman's new suit, where it's like, there's dials and buttons that can just do whatever they want. It's a bunch of gadgets. Okay. Um, It's sort of interesting. He gets these power gloves. He gets beat pretty handedly in this issue by mostly just Johnny Storm. Who's his main rival, because in Strange Tales, which was a Johnny Storm solo book, he's always fighting the wizard. That's where the wizard, I think, debuted, in fact. Okay, so wizard shows up with his wonder gloves, and Johnny just beats the crap out of him. Ben is turned human. Sue is pregnant and going into labor. And uh, and then Johnny and Crystal are talking about their relationship. We got a lot going on here. Well, she's not going into the labor quite yet. They're worried about how the co- their cosmic powers are going to affect the birth. And Crystal sort she- of is hanging out with Sue the whole time. Yeah. Uh, there's a great sequence... Where Ben fights the thing as a human. Ben, ben, fights, uh, the ben fights the wizard, sorry, as a human. Uh, he does not do well, but like he spends like two pages trying to fight this guy without any powers. And then That's Johnny it. sort of just takes over and just just trounces him. Like Reed is knocked out, Ben is no help, and Johnny's just like, I'll do it myself. You know, zaps him. Uh, the wizard has force fields. Johnny like uh, melts a hole underneath him, drops him into a tank, clamps yeah. a lid on him in some sort of weird device. Like a centrifuge type device. Yeah. Spins him around. And then you get to page 19 and Johnny's just sitting there holding up these gloves going, done. Uh, In fact, anyone want to buy a pair of goofy gloves, says Johnny Storm? That's really, that puts him in his place. It's a pretty good burn. Um, But the wizard just flies off and escapes, right? Uh, Yeah, he uses his his, uh, anti-gravity discs and he flies away. Without his gloves. Yeah, uh, Johnny still has the wonder gloves at that point. There's a shot where Johnny's kind of taunting the wizard. He's like waving them in the window as the wizard flies away. Um, It's mean. It's mean. Uh, Ben Grimm is hunky in this issue, Kevin. Do you agree? Ben Grimm is a hunk. I mean, the whole team is a good-looking team. They've all become like super hot over like the last 20 issues. Yeah, once a Reed, you know, bulked up and uh, Johnny got through his awkward phase... I mean, they're all looking great. They're beautiful. Like they're a beautiful foursome. I like my heroes as uggos. 
But yeah. um, it's not happening. Maybe even the thing in brick form looks pretty handsome to me. I just yeah, just bricky. Let's go on to the next issue. Um, but yeah, but Ben is upset. He wants. Uh, uh, he's mad that he can't help. He feels useless, and he says to Reed at the end of this issue, "You got to give me something so I can turn into that blue-eyed lump of lard whenever you need me." But Ben doesn't. Reed doesn't even want to try it. He's worried that if he turns him back into the thing, that's it. One thing we zipped by also is this issue starts with them showing up from the microverse, going, "Oh, it looks like Surfer took care of Galactus." Cool. <laughs> yeah, which he did. Yeah, which he did. So they missed that resolution completely, and they sort of are fine with it. Yeah, they're, they're cool with just uh, moving on. Oh, the planet eater is gone. Phew. Yeah, let's move on. They're still not telling Sue anything. Sue is sort of being kept out of the loop. Um, but that gets worse as we get closer to the birth of their son. Yeah, we've been talking throughout this whole podcast how they don't treat the female characters well, and it never gets better. I mean, basically. this is some of the worst stuff. In a few issues, uh, Sue's life is in danger or the child's life is in danger because of the cosmic powers. And they don't tell her. Yeah. They just like, we'll take care of it without letting her know. It is so awful. Kevin, I'm going to tell you a family thing now. I don't know if I've ever told you this, Uh-oh. but uh, our uncle Paul, our mom's older brother, told me a story. Now, see, do you know how our, mo- our mother, who died of cancer at the age of 40, you know how her mother also died of cancer pretty young? Yes, I did know that. Uh, older than mom, I think she was in her late fifties, but you know, also died of cancer. But did you know that the doctor, when they diagnosed her with cancer, I, I heard this from our uncle Paul. The doctor told our grandfather, "Your wife has cancer. What should we do?" They didn't tell her. I mean, that's crazy. And they didn't want her to be worried. And then, like when it got worse, they told her. And they had, I don't, you know, I, I don't know the details of like how she reacted to not having been told. But it, it was. Um, Striking to me over how that was, I don't know if common is the right word, I mean, but something that could happen. When would that have been, I guess? The 20s? No, um, the 50s, I think. 50s? So I guess considering Stan late, late, and late, Jack's late ages. Late 50s, early 60s, maybe. So maybe considering Stan and Jack's age, that's just men take care of this stuff. Women don't need to know. I actually think it was the early 60s because Paul was telling me this because he was in the army in Europe and Grandpa wanted him to come home. Uh, and so he called Paul and told Paul. So Paul knew, but Paul's mom did not know. Um, well, the eldest son needs to know. I, I think that's kind of partly what it was. I don't mean to put words in Paul's mouth, but I think he was telling me, like, just sort of like, isn't this crazy? And like the weird, like, pressure that it put on him. And, and I think also in episodes of, this is a dumb other example, but in episodes of Mad Men, like Don Draper will get calls from the doctor talking about his wife, Betty. Like there's a part where they worry if she's like had got serious mental problems. And so she goes to a head shrinker, but the, you know, a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist tells Don what he diagnosed, not Betty. Um, I don't agree with any of those decisions. I mean, Don wasn't a great guy. Don Draper was not a great man. Model husband. Oh, really? Um, You had a different read on that. (laughs) I think that if you're a good husband, you should be maintaining several alternate lives you never tell anybody about to keep yourself interesting. Mm. It's important to be alluring. Okay. That's interesting. Well, you know what? Uh, I see why comic books (laughs) appeal to you then. Yes, this comic book is treating its women badly, but to some degree that's of the time. That doesn't give it an excuse, but maybe an explanation. I mean, I okay, guess, so, uh, you know, she has superpowers. I think that should give her a little bit of uh, agency. We don't, we don't, I don't want to like excuse the weak characterization of the female characters in Fantastic Four, but I guess it's a step forward that she's in the team, right? She's not just like the wife at home. Yeah. She's got a costume. She's 
part of the four. Whenever mm-hmm. there's a huge battle, she is sometimes she's, brought along. She's like brought in over half the time. <laughs> there is some kind of step forward, and there was at least enough potential put there that future writers could make her an amazing character. So yeah, I, I mean, know. just having her there is a step better than anything else. Because if you don't and, have that character there, then it's a huge step to get her on the team. Uh, I think about that with Stranger Things season three, which I really loved. Yeah, but Stranger. Thing season two added a few more female characters, and they didn't really know what to do with those characters. It was like Max and uh, um, yeah, the younger sister character, and they were in there and they had moments, but it just felt like felt a little bit like they were put in there because it was mostly a male Dudes, show. Yeah, but then in season three, they all had things to do because now they were there and they had time to like. Now they all had been there for a season. Yeah, it made They're it in the easier mix. to involve them in stories. But if you hadn't at some point just sort of brought them in, you never would get to the point where. They felt part of it. So it really paid off. Yeah. So there's some kind of groundwork being laid here. Um, Let's do issue, what is it, 79? A Monster Forever. That's right. Introducing the Android Man. Yes. A character so forgettable, it took us several minutes to remember who he was, even as we flipped through. And I said he didn't have a name. (laughs) I'm mostly right if his name is Android Man. Yeah. It's it's like calling your villain Villain Man or something. Yeah. We've already had the awesome Android, so this is like a step down in some ways. So Ben is human, and the Mad Thinker, the Scheduler Supreme, mm-hmm. has released another android. He's done this before. He released a big gray clay-looking android. This is an android that looks just like a person. That's right. And it's called Android Man, and he sort of attacks the FF, and it's just sort of a big fight, right? Uh, he is uh, hunting down the power gloves. Okay, he wants the wizard's gloves. The wizard has, uh, yeah, the mad thinker said, uh, chase down wizard's gloves. I don't fully understand the logic behind any of that. Even in my notes, I wrote, huh? Question yeah. mark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, like, I don't know if the mad thinker shows up in this. Yeah, is that just a mistake of Stan's dialogue? It, it doesn't, could be, Stan or, does it usually? It could be a mistake or it could be just like Jack Kirby, uh, was trying to figure out some reason why. It all sort of doesn't make sense because even the way Ben turns back into the thing is by using the Wonder Gloves. Yeah, which is weird. Yeah, so it's a very confusing issue. Uh, I'd like to, I know we've been digressing a lot. Let's talk about the doorman on page four, Will. Okay. He's very Irish. Let me see, is there any clues that he's Irish? His name is O'Houlihan. Okay, that's Irish-ish. He says, thanks me foin bucko. I'll remember ye and me well. Okay, there's some slight hints there that he's Irish. I and like then, that we're being... Yeah, and then his next line is, Ah, be off with you, laddie, as he smacks Johnny playfully with his hat. Tisn't the clothes that make the man, and we, well, ye know it. Anyway, we've um, never seen this character before, and he is a lot. Yeah, he's really in there. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think they should. he should have his own book. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty auspicious introduction. Now let's spin him off. Uh, Reed has a little subplot where he is worried about his son being born a freak. I yes, mean, that's the term he uses. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Franklin looks totally normal, but he is strangely all-powerful in sort of a quasi-never-fully-understood sense. Yes. Um, although he's not born yet, so we don't know any of that yet. That's right. That's all. We don't even know his name will be Franklin for like another three years. It takes him like a year to name him. Oh, inter- interesting. Yeah. Uh, in in a, real a, time, in issue time, who knows? Yeah, could be a week. Uh, but yes, the uh, anyway, back to the main story. This giant android, or android man, attacks. Mm-hmm. And it goes after the thing who, for some reason, is carrying the power gloves. That's, I don't think, fully explained. 
Yes. Uh, to protect Alicia, the thing puts on the power gloves, which somehow turn him back into the thing, which is what he wanted. And uh, the day is saved, though he is now the thing forever. There's also a thing while he's still Ben Grimm where he's on a date with Alicia and she touches his face. She calls him handsome, but he thinks, but I don't grab you like the thing did. I can tell by your touch. And that's always established, right? We know that Alicia is attracted to the thing and not so much to Ben Grimm. Or at least Ben thinks that's true. It's crazy. Yeah. He's like, oh, she must not like me. I look like a monster, but she doesn't like me when I'm a human. He never quite buys that Alicia would go for it. Yeah, uh, I love Ben Grimm. They're married now and happily. Yay. Uh, yeah, the issue ends with him sort of walking off sadly uh, into like the, you know, away from everyone, away from Alicia and Johnny, just sad, like a very Spider-Man-ish mm. ending. I like it. I like sad ending. I he goes, why should I be a nowhere nobody like plain Ben Graham when I can be the thing forever? But he's clearly sad about it. <laughs> um, this guy's never happy. That's right. That's my point. You know, pick a side. Pick a side, dude. Um, all right. Issue 80. So we, we um, this is the where treads the living totem. Yes. Guest starring Wyatt Wingfoot. <laughs> yeah, who's fun. Uh, the splash page here is a Tarantino shot where we get to see the thing's feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tarantino, this is the first comic Tarantino saw, and it really triggered something in him. Yeah. Uh, the thing is kicking back at the Baxter building. Johnny's got a broom, and the thing's feet are in full display in the foreground. Crystal um, is vacuuming. In a, she's got a little, like, a apron on. Yeah, uh, and basically Wyatt Wingfoot is in trouble. He's been skipping college and traveling around in the Black Panther's gyro dome that he was given as a gift. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Reed, Ben, and Johnny decide, let's go check on it. Yeah, and they're, why are they dancing around? They're just happy to go on vacation or something? Ben's excited to do something. He's, and he's, he's happy that bored. Reed's going and leaving his wife behind. He's happy that it's a boy's trip. Right. But uh, Johnny's sad because he has to leave Crystal behind because, get this, She's got to stay with Sue in case Sue needs her. Makes sense. All she can do is control the weather, so well, how could that be useful? So Reed has to leave his wife because he's just been around too much, but mm -hmm. Crystal has to stay. This really <laughs> irks me. <laughs> yeah. This would be uh, a fun story. I mean, it'd still be have problematic because of the Native American um, aspects, but if it was the thing... Johnny and Crystal on a little adventure. I'm on board. Yeah. So the the villain. I know. I I would I would I would love it. Um. But we don't get that. We get a boys' trip out west to visit Wyatt yeah. Wingfoot, and he runs into the villain of our issue. Yes. Tomazuma. The totem yeah, um, who walks. So this is sort of like inspired by Native American artwork. He basically looks like a totem pole come to life ish. Mm -hmm. Totem pole crossed with Galactus. His uh, dialogue here and his sort of splash page introduction is, Who dares approach the living presence of Tomazuma, the totem who walks? My sleep of ages now is ended. Those who created me must die. So speaks Tomazuma. I love that he and gets his name like, in there twice. This is sort of classic Marvel villain speak. And then uh, in the same exact panel that he just said his name twice, Wyatt Wingfoot says, Tomazuma, the death that walks. Yeah, so we get his name in there all the time. It's good. It's good icebreaker strategy. I mean, Tomazuma's sort of a diplomat. He's saying his name a lot so you can learn it. I mean, that's some that's some good strategy right there. Sure, sure. Yeah, he's a good guy. He could work the room. I'm saying this guy might be a politician. Um, so I know it's like, you know, in our newly enlightened age, we see it as problematic for 
you know, Lower East Side white guy, Jack Kirby, to try to do some Native American art. It's not my place to argue for or against it. I'll say that I love when he finds different inspirations for just different visual aesthetics. It like looks, I love Tomazuma's look, basically. It looks cool and different, and I think it's exciting. It's not just another bald dude with a mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, visually, it's compelling to me. But like this I issue just, is also filled with a bunch of uh, White Wingfoot's tribes, men wearing full headdresses and, mm-hmm. you know, basically something right out of a John Wayne movie uh, get-ups. Uh, mind you, they're also driving Jeeps and, and uh, holding high-tech laser guns because they're rich from oil. <laughs> I love it. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> like, if you look at page 18, where they're all driving around in their Jeeps shooting at Tomazuma, it's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah, that looks great. Um, yeah, we have, a you know, the, the wise, the wise men of the Native American tribe in full headdress, jeeps and machine guns shooting at the living totem as he swings his fists wildly. But they call him the false Tomazuma. Yeah, he's somehow. not real. It ends up being a fake thing. He's like a robot or something? Yes, he's a robot. Uh, at the very end, the totem is destroyed. They shoot it. That, basically what happens is they realize he's a robot. Uh, Reed turns himself into a little ball and they fire him in a rocket launcher into Tomazuma's mouth. Uh, where Reed is able to disarm the power pack. But the okay. real Tomazuma was watching through the mist. The real spirit of the living totem. And yes, that's like, right. he, so we, we honored him by defeating the false Tomazuma. Yeah, so somebody built that, I guess, to chase these Native Americans off the land so that they could get, because it's valuable land or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's a good story. I don't, I, I'm an out-of-touch old man, so it's hard for me to judge mm-hmm. problematic things, but it's a... It feels like a fun story where the good guys win, and they're trying to take care of this tribe, so sure, I, I like it. Uh, let's take our break right now, I think, because we're about to get into the annual. Okay, we'll take a break. Uh, this is Will and Kevin from Screw It. We're just going to talk about comics. And hey, if you're enjoying this podcast, maybe try listening to our first season. Yeah, maybe. We started this podcast by doing a whole season, 50 episodes, all about Spider-Man comics. We even did it under a different name. Screw it. We're just going to talk about Spider-Man. Uh, and we did one episode for each issue of the original comic book run. That was done by Spidey's creators, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. Plus, we spent time talking about the Spider-Man movies, the recent video game, one on Steve Ditko, one on Stan Lee, and lots of other fun stuff. And all those episodes are still up. They should be part of the same feed you use to get this podcast. So, if you're a fan of Spider-Man, uh, check those out. Screw it. We're just going to talk about comics. But in this case, we're just talking about the first season where we talk about Spider-Man. All from Campfire Media. And we are back. Hope you enjoyed your break, everybody. Yeah. What'd you do with it? Yeah. Did you make use of it? Did you take a trip somewhere, maybe? I mean, uh, I went down to Fort Lauderdale during that break. And I, I took a, a, a jetted over to Iceland and I walked on a glacier. Oh, well, look at us. But we're back. We're back now. And we're going to talk about... And we're getting into the annual, this is annual the, six. This is the last Fantastic Four annual that Kirby worked on because the next one after this, I think it was just reprints. Okay. Uh, this is also, I think, the last real new character Kirby creates... That has any staying power, at least. Annihilus. Uh, great name. Uh, and it's in, the story takes place in the negative zone. It's also the birth of Franklin, though, as I've said, he is not named until... I wrote down he's still not named at... Uh, baby still named as of issue 88. Sometime after so, that, he's named. This is a, an action-packed annual. The basic gist of it is that Sue Richards is on the verge of giving birth. Yes. But there are some problems, and to solve those problems... Reed needs something from the negative zone, and he knows this somehow. So 
before I get into that, because I don't remember those logistics, it's Reed and the Fantastic Three without Sue going into the negative zone mm-hmm. to fight some villain to get some gadget they need to protect Sue. That's right. And the baby. The uh, and, Anilis then, and it is sort of this sort of demon looking character, and he wears on his chest a cosmic rod that is sort of the source of his powers, mm-hmm. and how he mm-hmm. is basically this, he's this tyrant dictator of the negative zone. Okay. And so they need that cosmic rod. And, okay, so the, it's the Fantastic Three in the Negative Zone versus Annihilus to get the rod to save Sue. Um, I'm just scanning through it, man. Looks great. <laughs> it's great. I mean, the Negative Zone stuff is always beautiful looking. They go through the Kirby dots to get there. They fly through, like, a Doctor Strange universe. They go through a photo page. Um, it looks awesome. Reed is just constantly stretching into all kinds of weird shapes. Yeah. Johnny's uh, using his flames to navigate through the Negative Zone. There's a ton going on here. They're Annihilus no longer is, worried about being sucked into that antimatter right. planet. So something about their harnesses help them avoid that in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, this is just basically like they're in an outer space of a fantasy universe, kind of. Yes. Instead of, like, being on Mars doing this, which stretches the imagination, they go to the negative zone, where it's totally plausible. <laughs> um, there's a huge battle. And, Kevin, I'm sorry to spoil it, they win. Well, they don't really win, I would say, Will. Uh, I argue, I'm going to argue with you on that. Okay. I think they lose, their, their, or it's a standstill at best, and then they basically explain to Annihilus uh, that they need some power from his rod, and he gives it to them. Uh, okay. I mean, they win for a little bit, but then Annihilus sort of regroups and chases after them with a giant gun. Zaps yeah, I, lose them, like, I, lo- I lose track of it, to be honest. I mean, like, it's an up-and-down battle. I mean, this is a 40-page story. It is insane. Yeah. When you get to, like, page 35, they're trapped on a on a meteor going into that uh, antimatter, antimatter Earth. They're going to die. They're constantly on this asteroid floating towards this antimatter Earth. It's like the third time it's happened. I mean, if they go to this planet, that's where they're going to end up. It's just a fact. Yeah. But Annihilus wants his cosmic rod back, and then basically they talk to Annihilus and are like, is there any way to drain some of the energy without? And he goes, of course. There's a little nozzle at the tip. That's a quote. <laughs> There's a nozzle at the tip. Uh, so they take some of the energy from the cosmic rod into some like device Reed has. They give it back to the tyrant dictator Annihilus. Okay. And then he gives them back their uh, devices that let them fly off of this, um, you know, meteor thing that's going to go into the antimatter earth they fly back to earth and uh, give birth to a son so they fight for 40 pages and then they have a conversation and work it out yeah that's what i'm saying like it's not like they really won it's like it's sort of a standstill they have the cosmic rod but uh they can't get they can't leave and the nihilist sort of holds those cards and so they just sort of say like hey can we have some of your energy he goes yeah of course there's a nozzle on the tip I would have sold it to you for a few bucks. <laughs> There's like been 10 issues in a row where it just ends with a conversation. Yeah, that's how they got out of the microverse. They talked to Psycho Man. They're like, hey, Earth's sort of in trouble. Can we go deal with it? He's like, oh, yeah, I didn't know. It's how they talk Silver Surfer out of leaving the microverse. They fight him for a while, and they're basically just like, hey, Surfer, by the way, Galactus is looking for you. He's like, what? I got to go, guys. Yeah. I got to deal with that. Like, yeah, that was yeah. what we came here for. They shouldn't fight ever. These issues could be two-page stories. Then we could get back um, into my uh, uh, Willie Lumpkin podcast storyline that's really getting short <laughs> uh, shrift. It's a beautiful issue. We're skipping over a lot. There's just tons of beautiful panels. There's giant monsters, enormous uh, Kirby machines. Like There's some page, uh, page 26, where these sort of 
I don't know, these sort of like wrench-faced dragon monsters leap out of like rubble. The supremely bestial borers is what they're called. <laughs> it's insane how much stuff happens in this story. It really is a great annual. It's sort of the last hurrah of the Fantastic Four, I would say, is this story. Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, really, they really want their annuals to be big deals. Like, they really show up for these annuals. This one in particular, because the last handful, or I can't remember the last one, there have been a few that have been like normal size stories with like reprint backups, or even the Doom Origin, which was great, with a Doom Origin and then just sort of like a normal Doom story following up on right, that. Right, right. And this one is, is, this is a 40, this is a, the movie spinoff from a TV show. The Fantastic Four is a TV show, and then like, hey, we're going to have a feature film in theaters this summer, what's it going to be? This is it. Like the Downton Abbey movie. It's a hundred percent. This is the Downton Abbey movie of comic books, which I saw and I loved. But yeah, so uh, I have not seen it. Um, but I hope there's Annihilus makes a guest appearance in it. I will not reveal. Yeah, I don't want to know. Don't spoil it. Um, Annihilus may or may not be a Downton Abbey. <laughs> good, good to know. And then the family uh, uh, clutches Franklin in what seems to be an enormous amount of blankets. <laughs> happy ending. Yeah, it's yeah. a happy ending. Yay. Uh, which oh. means that Sue can come back to fighting, right? I also, well, no. Uh, yeah. I wrote this note in my notes for this. Crystal is allowed in the hospital room with Sue, but not Reed. So only Johnny's inhuman girlfriend is allowed to be with her. Stan <laughs> maybe has never met a woman. Right, right. That's what I wrote. I yeah. wasn't sure. He may have met a woman at this point, but I, I can't tell for sure. When he did, the first question he has is, does your hair move? <laughs> or uh, uh, do you have laser eyes? It's like a, a, a Martin Short character voice. Yeah. <laughs> it goes a little something like this. <laughs> Give me a C. <laughs> uh, no, Sue does not rejoin the team. She's got uh, nursing to do. Next issue, issue 81, Crystal joins the team. Yeah, she's got a Fantastic Four uniform on in the splash page. Yeah, issue 81, Crystal has a Fantastic Four uniform. Uh, Sue has a brand new baby to take care of, so someone has to take her place on the team. And, and I mean, honestly, if Sue sort of is... On maternity leave from the team, that makes sense. And Crystal is a perfect replacement. She's a very powerful female character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. It's a good fit to join the team. Uh, Sue is not yeah. even shown in this issue. Not even for a single <laughs> panel. She's referred to, but we don't see her. Uh, well, she's got to rest. We, she can't use her energy by being drawn. Uh, also, I think Reed is unsure about whether, whether he should let her join the team. Uh, Crystal? Yeah, uh, on page four, a replacement for Sue? I hadn't even thought of that. But you're just a child, Crystal, the same age as Johnny. And the job is one of the most dangerous on Earth. You're more powerful than all of them. Uh, I'm no younger than Sue herself when your team was first formed. And I've possessed my power all my life. I won't have to learn from scratch. I'll have to think about it. It's not a decision to be made lightly. So he's such a he's such a stick in the mud, says the guy who brought Johnny Storm into outer space. Yeah, without a second thought. Yeah. And they've also brought Alicia along, the blind sculptress on missions. Just like, yeah, come along. Yep. Uh, but meanwhile, Will, the wizard is working on new wonder gloves. <laughs> well, the last ones worked so great. I mean, they gave him an advantage for almost two pages last time. Yeah. Uh, but these help him have the combined powers of the entire Fantastic Four. They will enable him to totally defeat them now. And forever. Uh, we got a cool little splash page with him putting the gloves on. I love, got a Galactus look going on. I love suiting up. It's great. Yeah, suiting up is fun. So uh, he flies through the city and he tries out his powers by, like, smashing a car. He's wrecking a fire hydrant. Yep. He's sort of ha- having a blast. 
Uh, and then he blows up the old wonder gloves that uh, Reed had. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't and 100% jo- know why. I guess so he can't use those gloves against... Uh, I mean, not like they would. We get into a little... Skir- uh, the torch starts fighting right away, so there's like a torch versus wizard battle for a couple pages. Yeah, I mean, the torch defeated him single-handedly last time, so it's a smart first person to toss out there. A lot of splash pages now. We're in this period now where... There's extra splash pages because we had that splash page of uh, the wizard just putting his gloves on. Now we have a splash page on page 11 of the FF uh, Reed thing and Crystal flying on the Fantastic car. Um, like I told you, I read somewhere that Kirby had to use smaller pages for his drawings because of a new printing process. So maybe he was using fewer panels for that reason. I don't, I don't yeah, know. Uh, definitely there's fewer panels even on the pages themselves. There's often more. The, we're getting into the stretch where it's like four panel pages are becoming the norm instead of uh, six. Yeah. And that's definitely a sign of that. It's also the period where the Silver Surfer is launched and Kirby is mad. Yeah, because he's only doing five books. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, so, Crystal uses her powers against the wizard and it works pretty well because she controls weather. He wasn't anticipating that. He only had planned for the other four. Yes. But he uses his gloves to whisk himself to safety. And so it ends with uh, uh, Reed saying, uh, yeah, I guess you could join the team. She's earned her place. Yep. And it almost feels uh, like it almost feels like the end of the book, this last panel. They're all sort of walking arm in arm. Uh, the thing saying, from now on, the superhero biz is going to be a blast. And the caption says, and you better believe it. It's a happy ending. Yeah, it feels like it's all done. Uh, uh, um, I mean, also, Crystal's been now with the team for over a year of issues. And this is the first time she's done any mission with them. And it was against Reed's wishes. But, Kevin, next issue, she's already talking about leaving. Uh, Yeah, because the Inhumans need her back. So this is issue 82. It's called The Mark of the Madman. Yeah. I think first Crystal needs to get permission from the Inhumans to join the team because a man did not say she could do it yet. Okay, right, yeah. So she has to go to her head man, which is Black Bolt. That's right. The leader of the Inhumans. Uh, so the FF go with her. They all go back to the great refuge where the Inhumans live and are immediately attacked by the Alpha Primitives. Um, yeah, the race, the sort of like slave race of the Inhumans world. Yes. The the Morlocks, basically, like some sort of genetically created worker race. That's right. That's exactly what they are. And um, also we have a Lockjaw appearance, the teleporting dog who is great. Yeah, everyone gets excited to see him. Crystal gives him a big hug. He is beloved by all members of the Marvel Universe and all their readers. So now the FF fight the Alpha Primitives, but then that's kind of settled. And now we meet Maximus, who is somehow totally in charge. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Can I read one note I wrote about the wizard? I'm looking at yeah. my notes. I wrote, wizard has new gloves and gets beat up. I kind of love this loser. He's really adorable. I mean, he, he won't give up. He's very fun, uh, despite his ineffectualness. Anyway, just, uh, I just wanted to share that note. I think that's a fun note I wrote down. Uh, anyway, Alpha Primitives are fighting, and the thing knocks like eight of them over. Yeah, and uh, then they, they end up facing, they end up taking care of that, and then they come face-to-face with Maximus the Mad. He's taking control is, of the Inhumans. Yeah, and he's got some really crazy regal outfit on. It is like the craziest set of armor in the Jack Kirby run, <laughs> and that is a high bar. The headgear he's wearing, and I'm not exaggerating, the surface area of the headgear that he has on is could fit 10 heads in it. Yeah, easily. Easily could fit 10 heads. It would crush your head. If I put that on my head, <laughs> my head would be crushed under the weight of metal of that size. I don't care what. I guess, it could be aluminum. It's just too yeah. much. You just have to have a really strong neck if you want to wear Jack Kirby armor. The shoulder uh, guards 
are uh, like as long as my as half my arms. Yeah. Um, but Maximus is grinning. He seems pretty happy. He seems comfortable. Medusa is sort of chained to his side as a slave. That's not good. That's not, that's not a good sign. So the Alpha Primitives drag Crystal before Maximus. Maximus is petting Lockjaw, though. Even he likes Lockjaw. <laughs> Even he likes Lock- Lockjaw, and Lockjaw likes him. Lockjaw's a very yeah, friendly dog. <laughs> he's pretty chill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the other, the other main Inhumans are locked up. Black Bolt, the leader, the silent leader, whose voice is like a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. Triton, the fish creature, and... Um, What's uh, the guy who can see the weakness in anything? Crack something? Karnak. Kraken? Karnak, yeah. Also, Karnak don't forget like... about, you can't see him because he's behind the other three, but Gorgon oh, yeah. Gorg- is there too with his hooves that are good for stomping. Yes, yeah, so we got a nuclear bomb voice, fish man, foot stomping dude, and weakness karate chop guy. Yeah. Uh, so the Inhumans are in rough shape. Now, uh, the Fantastic Three, oh, were they not there? I guess they weren't there. They... I guess they just watched her leave with uh, Lockjaw. I misread that panel. Or no, maybe they got sent back? Because they fought the Alpha Primitive. Oh, I think the Alpha Primitives must have burst out into the Baxter building. It was unclear. The background was all yellow at that time. Yes. Okay, so that battle happened in the Baxter building. Yes. And when they and when the battle was over, Crystal was gone. Okay, so now they are racing to, they know something's up, so they get into their rocket ship and fly across the Earth to get to Crystal. Uh, they get there, they kind of fall into a pit, uh, they fight a giant fireproof robot. Again, lots of big splash pages throughout this. They fight a giant, like, ape robot. That's fun. Yeah. It, like, spins Cut. Johnny around like a fan to keep him from igniting his flames. That's very silly. Good strategy. Um, oh, and this guy's name is Zor. Z- Z-O-R-R. That's the ape robot, dude? Yeah. Because uh, the thing says, here's a wallet that could sink a battleship. And the ape responds... But Zor is not a battleship. Zor is power personified. Yeah. Uh, As always, the Marvel villain's strategy of speaking in the third person always helps us keep track of who's who. Yeah, and I think the bad Marvel characters are always just, I'm stronger. (laughs) So we cut back to the Inhumans. The FF are on their way, but no, no, they've been subdued by Zor. That's right. So we end end this issue in kind of a bad place. The, The good Inhumans are in a cage. It can't be shattered. Maximus and his crazy armor this has helmet crystal. It's so crazy. It goes so far back, too. Yeah, it's it's like a surfboard. It's like he's wearing a surfboard. Oh, my God. It's so crazy. It looks so uncomfortable. Um, so we have a little cliffhanger here. Everything is bad. Maximus has got everything where he wants it at the end of this issue. And uh, unfortunately for Earth, he's got an unlimited range. So the range of this weapon is unlimited, Well, Yes. An unlimited range hypno gun. Oh, boy. And you know what hypnosis does? It always works. That's right. Um, All right. That sounds like the Earth is doomed. And that's the end of the Fantastic Four series. Yeah, that was the last issue. It's never been done again. There was uh, no cartoons or movies based on these characters that were sort of finished off sort of uh, in this sort of ignoble defeat. Uh, Only kidding. (laughs) We fooled Uh, you. We fooled you. (laughs) The FF come back next issue and totally win. Isn't that right? Yes. Uh, The FF kind of wake up. They're sort of trapped in a weird dome thing while this Maximus is, issue... is taking a bath with some centaurs. <laughs> this is issue 83, Shall Man Survive? Yeah. This is... Oh yeah, Maximus is taking bath with the centaurs. He looks so crazy. The, the inhuman stuff, I, I I should hate it. It's so <laughs> random and I love everything about it. He's taking a bath and he's being tended to by some centaurs. That's right. He His face is completely insane looking. Yes. He puts on 
a different set of armor that is also, I guess this is like battle armor because it's not quite so regal and weighty. I mean, this armor I mean, would be the craziest armor I've ever seen, except it's not as crazy as last issue's. Um, we get a nice full splash page of him in his battle armor. I'm just calling it that because it looks like you could actually walk around <laughs> in it. You can move in this. He's still and planning the, to fire his giant hypno gun at mankind. But things start to go wrong for Maximus pretty soon, Kevin, because the Inhumans break out of their cage when Black Bolt talks. Yes. And I guess he was worried if he talked, he'd kill everyone around him. It could mean the death of us all, uh, Medusa says. Um, but he's able to kind of just like whisper or maybe it's the pitch that he's using. He's a uh, black bolt also has perfect pitch. He can never really demonstrate that because it wrecks whole cities. Yeah. But it, maybe, maybe he's got a beautiful singing voice. You know, maybe this is like a Joni Mitchell like tone coming out of his voice that like rips apart this cage. But at any rate, they escape. It gets a little the logic gets fuzzy. And that's saying something because once they escape out of the prison, Medusa says, now that one is free, we are all free. The hypno spell is shattered. Uh, OK. And she uses yeah, her, her hair to remove her handcuffs immediately. It seems like she could have done that earlier, but I guess there's a yeah. hypno spell on them. So now the good and humans are out of the cage. They're all united, and the alpha primitives attack. So we have good and humans versus alpha primitives for a couple pages. Yeah, I mean, it's only uh, because it's four panel pages now, it's only about nine panels of battle for three pages. It still looks beautiful. Still looks great. Um, so we do cut to Sue, and Sue is with Franklin. She's. She's talking about how she can't name him and has to wait for Reed to do it. Reed is so good at things like this, she says. Yeah, he's the guy that came up with the name Mr. Fantastic. That's right. That's right. So if he picks a name, it'll be like Baby Stupendous or something like <laughs> yeah, that. That's right. Um, uh, so Sue refuses to name her child. Uh, meanwhile, the FFR, oh, Zor is back in the mix. Our ape robot oh, good. enters I the fray. Um, but Thing clobbers him. In like a poster-like, uh, it's clobbering time punch. Uh, I love it. Uh, yeah, the it's clobbering time is like a sound effect, not a speech balloon. Yeah. Oh, does it look like Maximus fires his ray? He no, gets ready to. to he, I mean, it's James Bondy, and he it's like ready, aim. It gets pointed up, and then Crystal zaps her fingers at it and shatters it with her cursed elemental force, and it breaks apart right away. Uh, Maximus has to ride off on one of his centaurs. <laughs> um, he rides away in a in a. He rides off on a centaur? He rides off... Oh, yeah, there he goes. Then he escapes in a rocket ship. Yeah, he rides a centaur to a rocket ship and flies away to no galaxy, uh, to some other galaxy where he will regroup and then come back with his centaur and tree man and bird creature. So after having been on the ropes last issue, the good guys win by Black Bolt speaking, Thing punching the ape, and Crystal di just disintegrating the hypno gun. Yeah, they just used their powers. Yeah. Um, and I think okay, that's, so the sort of the, that's sort of the... Problem with these issues, uh, maybe it's always been sort of true, but it's like, you know, there's like lots of ideas still, even without new characters. A lot's happening, but then the, the resolution always just seems like, and this time they win. Yeah, they they kind of just wrap up when it's time to wrap up. Let's um, let's uh, I think that that's let, let's go to the mailbag and and let's um, we'll we'll do more issues next episode. Yeah, next issue is going to be a doom issue. It's a it's a little doom arc, so we'll cover that next episode. Uh, get ready for that. Uh, Doom fan. Yeah. The, yeah. Dr. Doom comes back. I remember liking that story. That'll be fun. Can I talk? Let's talk for a little bit, Will. Okay. Uh, here's one of the things. I, I love Crystal joining the FF, even though not a lot is done with it. Um, maybe part of that is because I really loved when we were uh, reading the Burn Run when uh, She-Hulk joined the team. Yeah. There's something about when FF has replacement members uh, 
that it feels like such a big deal. Like the Avengers always has team changes, but it's a team, right? It's a roster. Justice League always has team uh, member changes, but like there's nothing connecting them. Where the FF feel like it's this family of four characters. Yeah. Uh, and anybody else is is sort of an imposter and a temporary replacement. And because of that, those replacements feel so much cooler to me. They're more finicky about it. It's like a special occasion. Yeah, it feels really important. I mean, there was even a run recently where uh, Johnny was apparently uh, uh, dead temporarily. And Spider-Man joined <laughs> the team for a while oh, wow. to like honor his friend. And it, like even there, it just felt like, what an honor for Spider-Man to get to join the Fantastic Four. Where like when Spider-Man joined the Avengers, it's like, yeah, okay. Right, right. Everyone's been in the Avengers. Yeah. I don't know. There's something great about it. And this is the first time that's ever happened. She-Hulk's been in the Avengers, right? Yes. She-Hulk was an Avenger before she was a Fantastic Four member. She was, uh, I think, West Coast. So I wonder how many people have been in the FF and the Avengers. She-Hulk, Spider-Man. Was the Thing ever an Avenger? The Thing for sure was. I think everyone... I mean, they're at least. I think Reed and Sue even were temporarily at one point. Okay. Everyone's at least okay. been guest members. Maybe not the Torch. He's maybe the only one that I'm not sure about. Um, I like Crystal as a character. I, I'm I'm glad that they're using her. I wish they used her even more. Yeah, that's all. I wanted to just talk about uh, her joining the team. I think that's cool. I like that it's a big deal. Uh, we got a lot of emails. We probably can't go through them all. Will okay. Um, so I'm gonna pick a couple at random ish. Right. Uh, Mike Sazabo. Wrote to tell okay. us, uh, he was, he wrote in about the the original Human Torch fighting the uh, Johnny Storm Human Torch. Yes. He says he read that the original Human Torch uh, had come out 28 years to the day before that annual. And Carl uh-huh. Burgos, the Human Torch's original creator, was going to go to court the next day to try to get his character back. When, oh, he, no. found it, when he found out the news, when he heard that this character was coming back. Ooh, um, sad. So... He basically found out that they brought his character back and was ready to sue, even though they already had a human torch that was all but the same character. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, the same name, the same powers. Yeah. Uh, It was very sad. He said he was so mad at Stanley and Marvel that he burned every single Marvel item that he had. Yeah, I believe it. It's just, it's so frustrating when people don't get their intellectual property or they don't get to profit from the from the stories they made up yeah uh john borns wrote an email uh, he's pro mad thinker we make fun of the mad thinker a lot because his power seems to be scheduling is that right well that's right that is that is absolutely true so he wrote i was thinking about the mad thinker which i'm sure he expected me to do <laughs> uh looking at it now it's obviously an absurd premise from the 60s back then it was easy just to sort of quickly explain him away as computers and androids because those were new and exciting and hard to understand. But I wonder if a villain like the Mad Thinker could actually work in today's world. We now literally live in a world in which there are entire industries built around behavior, predictive and and analytics and artificial intelligence. It doesn't seem that all all that far-fetched and in fact a bit terrifying to think that a villain could successfully weaponize your own ideas and behaviors against you. Is it time for a Mad Thinker standalone film? Which is a bit of a jump <laughs> by the end, but I'm sort of convinced. Yeah, it is a pretty good argument for it. Like if somebody could utilize all the algorithms. Yeah. Uh, if he was like a super algorithm guy, that, that, could, that could be presented as scary. He'd have to fix his hair, I think. Definitely less timing would be important. You'd have to demonstrate his powers in a way besides just naming minutes and seconds. Right. 
But I, I, I can see where he'd be scared. Thomas Franzen wrote, uh, because we often, we've been talking a lot about we weren't 100% sure when the negative zone was first called the negative zone. We weren't paying close attention. And he went through and said it was issue 61, which I think is what we guessed. Okay. Uh, when Reed opens the door to defeat Sandman and is sucked in, uh, and he refers it to, and I, he sent an, an image. You want me to send that to you, Will? Yes, please. I'm sending you the panel where the negative zone is first called the negative zone. Uh, oh, but nice. yeah, so it's issue 61. Like, it had been called subspace up until then, but then they started calling it the negative zone. Every once in a while, they still call it, like, the subspace door or portal, but now it leads to the negative zone. I'm happy to see that correct name be indoctrinated. He uh, makes a comment, uh, Thomas. Uh, FF gets the facts and logic wrong, but understands the spirit of science exceptionally well. I only really started paying attention to those themes after you guys pointed them out, so thank you both. Do you think a version of the FF that leaned more into real-world science could work, or would that be boring and tedious for the general public? I think it could work. I mean, I think good science fiction is always only one step ahead of where actual science is, so I think it's kind of fun. Yeah, I think especially as sort of its own thing, an FF in the real-world story that was mostly focused on using real-world science would be a really cool thing. I don't think you'd want to limit the book forever to that, but I think you could do a story along a line of those uh, senses. You know, quantum theory, Mm -hmm. entanglement. These are terms that I barely understand, but I think they would lead to some fun stories. Um, Do we have time for a few more, Will? Yeah. Great. Corey Mintz writes, uh, in a recent episode, you were lauding the contributions of Jim Shooter. Uh, And in an older episode of your Spidey show, you had wondered out loud about sales of Marvel Comics vs. DC. Recently, I happened to interview Jim Shooter, and we discussed just that thing. You ready for it, Will? I'm ready. Uh, So this is during the time of the launch of Alpha Flight, because it was an article about Alpha Flight. Here's a relevant quote from Corey Mintz, uh, uh, or from Jim Shooter via Corey Mintz. At that time, the X-Men was our best-selling book, and it sold upwards of half a million to three-quarters of a million a month. The other very strong books would sell 300, 400,000 copies a month. Avengers, Spider-Man, things like that. The line average when Alpha Flight started was well over 200,000. DC had exactly three titles that sold over 300,000. We were outselling DC five to one. Wow. Alpha Flight started off like a house of fire. I don't remember what the sales were on the first issue, but it was very good. I remember handing John Byrne a royalty check for $30,000 for that first issue. That's good. But it fell, and I think John was disappointed that it did not sell like the X-Men. Uh, when he was on it, it was selling 300000 and it drifted down from there. Hmm. But yeah, uh, so by the time we were reading Marvel Comics, Marvel was dominating, it sounds like. Um, you know, I'm a Jim Shooter fan, but I admit that I am biased because that's when I was my most passionate about reading current Marvel Comics. That was like my era. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think that so many great things happened in the stories at that time, and Jim deserves some credit for that i mean like stan he at least deserves the credit for saying yes frank do daredevil yeah for at least getting good people and giving them room to do their thing at the very least um i i I still haven't read something that makes me fully understand the pros and cons of jim shooter i i feel like i either read something that's totally lauding him or something that's totally panning him and i suspect the truth is somewhere in the middle my guess Uh, is he was probably like these showrunners you hear about sort of the um the dan Harmon types where it's like oh he's really smart and makes really good decisions and really has an innate knowledge of the stuff but he's a jerk and hard to work with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like which how much of that latter thing do you put up with for good work. Yeah, I, um, I, I get that idea too, and I'd like to have a more specific understanding of those mechanics. Um, um, so somebody write it and send it my way. 
Great. Somebody send us a, a, a true, unbiased explanation of Jim Shooter, all that's good and bad. Yep. Thank you. Robert Christ, a friend of the show, has written us a few times, asks a few questions. Which X-Men characters would you swap into the FF? I guess he's saying mm. if we like replace the FF with four X-Men, who would it be? I'm not I'm not enough of an X-Head to have full grasp of... Uh, so I'm sure that I, I'm, I would be missing some obvious choices. But okay, the easiest ones would be like Colossus for the thing. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Kitty, Kitty, Kitty Pride for Invisible Woman. Oh, I was thinking uh, Jean Grey, just telekinesis for invisibility powers. Oh, okay. I was thinking like phasing through walls feels sort of defensive like... Invisibility. I think that also works. Uh, torch. Uh, you need some kind of offense. Oh, Cyclops, maybe. You know, the laser beams. Mm-hmm. S- somewhat akin to shooting flames, although he can't fly. Uh, and then Reed. Oh, Professor X. I mean, you got to have the brain. Yeah, I was thinking Cyclops for Reed. Just the leader, the sort of the, the leader, square right, jawed right. leader. And Sunfire is a flame dude. Mm. Mutant. <laughs> sort of boring, maybe, obvious. but uh, just like... Let's it just, just gets the job done. Yeah. Uh, which Spider-Man story fight arc would you want Johnny to go through? What, what is that? mean i guess just like uh he, i think because they're similar ages what would it be fun to watch johnny have to deal with uh to see how well, he played it differently um i would like i mean there's such different characters it's always the emotional stuff that i like for spidey and i can never imagine johnny quitting or getting nervous yeah maybe it was something like um when dr octopus was uh dealing with betty brant's brother and so the torch had to deal with how do i fight this supervillain while my love interest brother is mixed up with him yeah, that sounds like it would work for Johnny. It'd be interesting to see Johnny do a story where he can't be the Human Torch because somebody's depending on him. The, the hiding from the Sandman story. Yeah, he has to I, I just, just don't know how that would work. Uh, I'll, I'll pick the Dr. Octopus Betty Brant run. That That's my pick. Uh, he also talks about wanting an FF animated show on Disney Plus instead of a live action. And I'm a big fan of animated things. But I think until it's a good live action movie exists, it just it won't feel real to people. Yeah, it will not be part of the zeitgeist unless it is a live-action movie that really does it well. Uh, is there a Spidey villain that could get as much revere as the Joker and get a solo villain film other than Venom? Uh, which I think tossing out Venom is a tough thing because Venom's probably the easiest one to do that with. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of them could be Joker big. Joker sort of is iconic on another level. He's so primal. And I feel like Spider-Man's villains are, are a little more bonkers because of that Ditko-ish style. Would the Green Goblin work? I don't know. I don't think so. His story is so nuts. I I think the, the, the most reliable Spidey villain is Dr. Octopus. Yeah. Uh, like the way he was characterized in the PS4 video game is sort of a heartbreaking story. Yeah. Um, I still don't think that'd be as good as Joker, but that would be my, if I was going to try to make it work, that'd be the best shot. I think I would do Craven. Oh, right. That's like, that's kind of a fun one. Craven's last hunt really showed a, an emotional side of him, but I don't think it'd be as big as the Joker at all. No. I love that Joker movie. I know that there's a lot of talk about it, but it really worked on me. Uh, I was under its spell. I have not seen it. Um, but I know it exists. <laughs> uh, we got a few more. Let's see. Um, Joseph Connolly writes, I think Mike Mignolo might be a good fit for the time-traveling Kirby replacement. This is a hypothetical we were asked if Kirby uh, didn't, it was murdered by like a time-traveling doom, which <laughs> other artists would we replace him with to, so that the Marvel Universe could still have like... Um, uh, a fertile creative ground. That's a totally great pick. Magnolia's got the same sense of fun and creativity and just his visual storytelling is so strong. It's an excellent pick. Yeah. Uh, here's another hypothetical. This is a fun one. If Ditko and Kirby had to switch books, so Kirby worked on Spider-Man and Ditko worked on the FF, which book would be better and which one would have the longer run? 
I don't know. I don't know if I can answer either of those questions, but how would you imagine they would go? Yeah. Um, Spidey would be more fighting and FF would be more emotional. How would um, FF? I think like Spider-Man's sort of easier to picture, right? He would just sort of be a Captain America type, you know, more so, right? Yeah. We kind of know what Kirby would do with Spidey because we know Kirby, we have more Kirby examples to draw from. But I, to, to imagine Ditko doing, being like the, the control, having control of the FF, they're so out of his normal wheelhouse. Yeah. It would have, it would be this sort of like moody internal FF. It would, he would bump up their emotional internal life. I mean, it would be good news for the Sue character. I think she'd be more involved. Yeah. I think, I think they would be, I think they would probably have to be less rich. Not necessarily they need to have money problems, but they would need to have other things going on. To involve yeah. them, like, where they would have to be like, uh, oh, you know, we're under the thumb of the, the Magi or something. I, I Maybe Ditko would get to his, like, libertarian side. Like, it would be FF versus the government. Like, the government would be trying to shut them down and put limits on them. And, you know, and he would be arguing that because of their abilities, they should have, a, I don't know, a, you know, some sort of, like, uh, the man doesn't under... I feel like Ditko always feels persecuted. So it'd be like, oh, we're being persecuted by the government or something. Maybe that's how it would go. Yeah, I mean, the the part that they sort of see eye to eye on, and for different reasons, is that the they they would be very they'd be good guys, pure Absolutely. and simple. There'd be no no question that their decisions are the right decisions. Yeah, they would have full integrity. Uh, Kirby because he's a war hero, and Ditko because of his Anne Randianness. Uh, I sort of feel like the FF wouldn't work as well under Ditko, and I think Spider Man wouldn't be as good, but it could work a Kirby Spider. Yeah, but just, they would. Be- it would be worse for both titles. Like oh, for sure just, would be. Yeah. Uh, they're not, those creators are not good fits for each other's stories. Um, uh, that's a point to Stan. That's true. Although they also created the stories, right? So they, they, made, they made them suit their, their own abilities. Um, like if Ditko had been given the Fantastic Four from the get-go, he would have created an FF more suited to him. Uh, Lewis Ryan sent us an email that sort of appropriates the stuff we were just talking about. Um. He says, I'm surprised you guys are so down on Crystal, which is probably more me. I complain about how Crystal is used. I don't think we're down on her as a character. I think we like her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he says she's fun. She's better written than Sue. And I think that's true, but that's a pretty low bar. Right. Um, I enjoy the run from issue 60 on because everyone is so happy and content. Reed is with Sue, Ben is with Alicia, and Johnny's with Crystal. Uh, I know it isn't as dramatic on the surface, but things are happening. There, the... Uh, this is mind-blowing developments for a 1960s comics. And I think we acknowledge that. Some have taken it for granted. Uh, but then he talks about, uh, he asks us, I was wondering your guys' thoughts on happiness and the role it plays in the FF. Comparing this run to Ditko's comically miserable Spider-Man, it's clear that the FF are truly succeeding at the American dream compared to Peter Parker. The FF pretty much succeed after Reed and Sue's wedding and, and stay that way up until Kirby leaves. And when Stan drastically writes Crystal out, and in a lame way, too. Crystal leaving in 105, which I've never read, and the many ways other writers would ruin her over the next 20 years is the real original sin after Kirby leaves. That sounds like it could be true. Uh, this is the thing that yeah. pretty much stopped the FF in its tracks. We wanted to see where the world would go next, but now we're back at square one. The FF works best when it feels like real people living in a fantastic life instead of some dramatic soap opera. That's a pretty good argument. I mean, Ditko's the one who likes Soap Piper. Kirby likes adventure and exploration, at least in the FF he does. Yeah. I think there's also probably some aspect to making Crystal leave at that point, uh, just to, like, stand trying to stop time from moving on. 
like that he wants these books to sort of get locked in so that they become iconic. Yeah. Um, I know. It's, I like this theory. That makes sense to me. Um, yeah, I mean, their happiness, I think, isn't essential, but I don't think it hurts the FF in the way that it would hurt Spider-Man for too long, him being too happy. Yeah. They, um, they don't need to be miserable. They need to be on edge. You need some dramatic tension. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting theory. Oh, and here's a really... He also... Lewis Ryan, thank you for sending this. This episode won't be released on this date, but today is October 16th, Will. Okay. Joe Sinnott's 93rd birthday. Oh, really? Today. Still alive. That's, I mean, the guy who brought Kirby's art to new heights. That's really cool. That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Jerry Siegel was born around this time. I think it's October 12th. Uh, I always feel like that's a birthday that I'm ashamed that I don't know it. I think that people should know the birthday of the guy that wrote Superman. Uh, October 17th, he's born. You're quicker than me at Googling. So that's Um, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. And I, you know, like Superman to me is like he created a whole Superman is the birth of all superhero stories. And so much of what is in every single superhero story comes from Superman. I feel like Jerry Siegel um, deserves to kind of be on every, everybody should know, everybody knows Stan Lee. Everyone should also know Jerry Siegel. Yeah, Siegel should be bigger. I mean, he's a guy who at the age of however old he was, 19 or 20 or 21, created one of the biggest myths in Western civilization. I mean, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Do you think more people know the name Bob Kane than Jerry Siegel? It's probably about the same, right? I don't know. I worry that it's bigger because Bob Kane probably deserves less credit for Batman. Um, Yeah, who's the guy that actually did all the Batman stuff? Is uh, it Robinson? Bill Finger. Oh, Bill Finger. Okay, like, I'm not too clear on all those details, but I know that Kane kind of thought of the name and the real sketchy idea, but he didn't really flesh out a lot of the details. Yeah, Bill Finger gets credit for um, a lot he, they people often call him like the real creator of Batman, and for yeah. sure, like the brains and the, and the. I mean, he was the artist and the brains, like even more than Kirby over Stan. Like Finger yeah. did it all, and Kane just signed his name to it. Uh, but Kane sort of just came up with, "Let's do a Bat guy and make him look a little yeah. bit like this," and then Finger ran with it. Is what it sounds like to me. From that's a a poorly. Uh, described version of that story. Uh, Siegel and Schuster. I don't mean to dismiss Joe Schuster, the uh, artist. Schuster's a, a chump. <laughs> but uh, I think that Jerry Siegel was really involved in the creation of Superman and a lot of the details. And um, e- you know, even though that's kind of his only creation, if you do that one, you don't need to do another one. Yeah. Um, and I know that he was influenced by things like the Phantom, and you know, uh, n- nobody nobody creates these things in a in a vacuum. But um, Superman was next level. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, and I think this kid from Cleveland, you know, found a, a crack in the in the primal essence of storytelling and mined it. And um, whatever you think of superheroes, this I think this guy deserves to be known. So Joe Sinnott, happy birthday today and then tomorrow, as we're recording and not when we release it. It'll be a week old. Uh, happy birthday, Jerry Siegel. It'll be last Thursday when this is released. Yeah. October 17th. Uh, one more email, Will. Okay. You ready for it? I am ready. Okay. This is from our pal Derek Tenonoy. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think as we referred to him in the last time we read one of his emails. Okay. Sometimes called Eric Tenoy. Yes. Uh, he's responding to us talking about Phoebe Waller-Bridge as a read on the podcast, uh, and that we sort of dismissed her as a good choice uh, while uh, lauding her as a sev- uh, significant talent. Yes. And he is suggesting Jodie Foster as a female read. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. Um, she's a, she's, she's kind of, 
you know, she radiates intelligence like Phoebe, but Jodie kind of has that, that, you know, like when she played Agent Starling, just this confidence, this kind of, I don't know, I could see her as a as a leader of an unstable group holding it together. I think that's a good call. Roll. Yeah, I don't know how old she is now. She might be too old to play character, uh, but I th- I'm saying that without really knowing. Like I would, she's I got, would the, right, them she's to got be, the right energy. I'd want them to be younger, but uh, I can definitely see a Jodie Foster uh, 56. Uh, yeah, probably. I mean, I, whatever, Eddie Jr. Bit. is older than that, I believe. So, you know, when you're starting out with this role, you might want someone younger. I don't know. But she, looking at photos of her, I think she pulled it off still great. Yeah, Jodie Foster is definitely the right, the spirit of the right casting if you want to do a gender-swapped Reed Richards. Yeah, that's a great call. She'd, she'd be terrific. All right, Eric Tenoy, we approve. <laughs> uh, and on that, uh, that's enough mail for today. we got a few others, old ones, but um, nothing we need to hit now. Well, I think that's our episode, Kevin. Yeah, I think it is. Uh um, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll come back next episode as we keep recapping these as we make our march toward issue 102. Yeah, we're getting close. Probably two more episodes of recaps to get through all those issues, I would think. I'm going to guess three. All right. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there might be more than two episodes. I think we'll get, we can get through all the issues in two episodes. Okay. We'll see what happens. It really depends how we'll next, next episode will be the real uh, test. Stay tuned to see how many issues we recap. Oh, if you want to email us. Email us at oh, yeah. screwitspidey at gmail.com. And I have an Instagram, screwitcomics, which is terrific. Kevin has these excellent screenshots of um, FF art. And then also our Twitter is screwitcomics. I'm going to go post a happy birthday to Joe Sinnott. Um, all right. So uh, we'll see you guys next episode. Kevin, good good podcasting. Good job, Will Hines. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Bye. Screw it. Screw it. Comics. Hey guys, I'm Stevie Nelson. And I'm Dave Horowitz. And we're the hosts of I Burn Everything. It's a podcast about food and relationships, which, you know, if we're being honest, are two out of the three things people want to talk about anyway. What's the third thing? Netflix. Okay. We'd like you to rate, review, and subscribe if you like it. Anywhere you listen to your podcast. Apple? iPod? Stitcher? Do you still have iPods? (laughs) (laughs) If you have an iPod, do it on an iPod. I don't know. If you have a Zune, do it on your it's Zune. probably hard to even charge them now. Yeah, good luck. And if you have a Tamagotchi, you can't do any of this. Yeah, you can't stream audio on a Tamagotchi, but you you can feed them. Yeah, you still so keep feed feeding. those little buggers. They're hungry. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Campfire. <laughs>